The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. If you had three wishes, what would you choose? Happiness, wealth, world peace, Ed Miliband for Labour leader? Or perhaps the difficulty in making such a decision would be too much for you and the stress of choosing too great. In this week's podcast, we're going to look at that cornerstone of economic orthodoxy, choice. And we've chosen an expert panel to guide us through it. Sheena Iyengar is a professor at New York's Columbia Business School and author of a recent book, The Art of Choosing. Andrew Lillico is chief economist at the Policy Exchange think tank, which I think we're obliged to label centre-right, Andrew, is that right? You can label it <laughs> however you like. <laughs> and Guardian columnist Julian Glover. Hello to you all. Well, Sheena, let's begin with you. In the research for your current book, you undertook dozens of experiments on the way people choose. And one of the most fascinating came from the world of speed dating. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, it was actually also described a little bit in blank by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. But a few years ago, when speed dating first began, we, we got really fascinated by this idea, and, and I did this with a few um, economists, where we went to a local bar that was right by Columbia University, and we set up a s- series of speed dating events. And the way this worked is that we either had 10 women and 10 men show up, or 20 men and 20 women show up. So beforehand, we asked them, what are you looking for in, in a date? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think is really important to you? Do you want them to be funny, good-looking, sincere, kind, smart, ambitious? You know, all, all the usual suspects. And so people told us what they really cared about before they went in. And then they showed up on the day of the event. And they sat there and had a series of either 10 dates or 20 dates. And they were randomly assigned. And the way it worked is that a guy and a girl would chat for five minutes, then the whistle would blow. After the whistle blew, you would now confidentially jot down what you thought of this person. Did you actually think that? How, how sincere did you think they were? How funny did you think they were? How good looking? And you indicated yes, no. Do I ever want to see this person again? And so we, they essentially did a sort of musical chairs. And after, at the end, by the end, they'd actually encountered all possible dates. Well, afterwards, we actually looked at who paired up with who. Did they actually choose or say yes to the people that fulfilled the criteria that they said they wanted? So if you were a woman and you said it was really important to you that the guy be really good-looking and and ambitious and smart, were you most likely to say yes to the one that was was to the one that you rated as being highest on those things? Well, what we found is that when you saw 10, indeed, you were more likely to say yes to the people that were higher on the criteria that mattered to you, or that at least that you said mattered to you. When you saw 20, though, all that carefully thought through criteria went out the window. Nothing else mattered other than looks, which was the simplest things to choose on the basis of all people wanted to do was narrow it down as fast as possible. Sheena, how does that differ from how people normally react to choice? Well, one of the things that's interesting about choice is we convince ourselves that the more choices we'll have, the more likely we are to not only find the best choice, but that we'll also engage in the labor of identifying it or finding it, right? And what actually happens often is that once we're in the moment, it, it, 
it's time consuming, it's effortful, it's also very tiring, and, and it's difficult for our minds to actually do the work of comparing and contrasting more than a certain number of options at a particular moment in time. And that's what actually gets us, you know, steers us away from the things we say we wanted. Andrew Lilico, are you convinced? Uh, well, I think that the results are what I would have expected from economic theory for a number of reasons. First of all, it's clearly true that if it's more uh, costly to make decisions, then you uh, are uh, going to narrow down your decision making in more arbitrary ways. Classic examples might be if I have um, a small number of applicants for a job, half a dozen, then I may tend to study each of them fairly closely. Whereas if I have a thousand applicants for the job, then I'm going to start doing very arbitrary things like saying anything not written with black ink on white paper is going to be cast out at the beginning. Because what I have is the expectation that if I have a very large set of things to choose from, then even the arbitrary sibs will leave me with what I require. Down. So I might as well just simplify in some fairly arbitrary ways. So, uh, And if I've got something slightly less arbitrary, like how good looking somebody is, then that seems like a reasonable place to start as a first sieve. Another but thing- An- Andrew, just to stop you there, the, the, the number of choices that Sheen is offering uh, people in that experiment is not between five and a thousand, it's between 10 and 20. No, so, but you should certainly expect... It, it, it won't be surprising if very complicated decisions like who you should um, date for a while. Uh, and We're talking about speed dating, not who you're going to marry. I mean, so, so what I like about the experiment is it's actually quite a, a trivial uh, experiment because going out with someone for a little bit is not the same as marrying them. Choosing between 10 partners and 20 partners is actually not that big a difference. And can Sheena hope, find- I mean, one day <laughs> could be the start of something bigger. You shouldn't assume it won't last. But, but you see, you, you get the point I, I'm making that actually, even in quite a small example, and Sheen is also well, I think you're most famous for doing experiments and jams. And uh, Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Sheena? Sure. Um, So with jams, what we found is we set up a tasting booth where we either pull out six different flavors of the Queen of of England's jam, Wilkin and Sons, or 24 different flavors. And it didn't have the normal flavors. So they they were, at least for Americans, they were unfamiliar options like Victoria Plum and Little Scarlet and... Uh, boysenberry, whereas things like strawberry and orange marmalade and grape were were removed. And we looked at two things, in in which case were more customers or passers-by in the store likely to stop at the tasting booth and sample some jam. And we found that more people stopped when they were 24, about 60% stopped, whereas only 40% stopped when they were six. When you actually looked at people's buying behavior, you found the opposite effect. More people bought when they were six, about 30%, whereas only 3% of the people bought when they encountered the 24, so that even though they were actually more attracted to the larger choice set initially, when it actually came down to making a choice, they were more likely to make a choice if they had encountered fewer rather than more. Andrew? Well, there's a there's all kinds of things that one might say there. Uh, it, these are obviously elegantly constructed experiments that identify interesting things. Uh, I guess one of the my first reactions to that would be if I have a very large set of things to choose from. One of the um, features is that I 
become less aware of what it is that I might be giving up. It's less clear to me what it is that I'm giving up by committing to something. So if I have a larger set of things to choose from, it's more expensive in that sense to surrender all of the uh, other possibilities. And one of the things I presume might be going on there is that if I have a very large set of things to choose from, I find it difficult to know whether I chose the best one out of the set uh, available. But it could well be, I am not familiar with the details of the experiment, but it could be that there were other features of the experiment which identified that, that those sorts of more complex additions. But these, one of the things about choices is that I don't think that you should necessarily uh, assume that an experiment which narrows things down in quite that way is closed. Because one, one thing about seeing that there are 24 jams is that it might suddenly make you think, ooh, there are some interesting um, extra possibilities. That reminds me of a jam I saw down at my corner store, which I might go and get instead, things like that. So that th- it's not that the, that the experiment contains all, all of the features of the world that are going to be spillover effects on your other behaviours as well. Julian Glover, let's bring you in. We've spent, I don't know, three decades or so in sort of an era where politicians think that the way to win over voters is often more choice and everything from hospitals to schools and so on and so forth. Do you think that's going to continue on or do you think experiments like the kind that Sheen is describing, the kind of economists and psychologists that are sort of doing the kind of work Sheen is describing are going to be heeded more by people in government? I think it will certainly continue. And I I think the the starting point of it is people want the consequences of choice. They don't necessarily want the act of choosing. And of course, those two things sometimes have to go together. And so you may see in politics an effort to say the government will do the choosing for you, but we'll give you a degree of diversity. Starting point is humans aren't all the same, and they don't all want the same thing. So that then implies choice. In a current episode of my favourite TV series at the moment, Mad Men, which I've chosen from all sorts of other TV series I could have chosen, um, but that was the one for me, there's a scene where Don Draper is trying to decide how to advertise lipstick, and the company comes in and says, we've been selling 200 colours of lipstick, and nobody's buying it anymore. And they debate it, and they finally say that the answer is not to stop making 200 colours of lipstick, but to tell the consumer that there's one colour of lipstick for you. You don't have to choose from 200, there's one for you. And that is really the paradox of choice, that if you're offered 200 things, you don't know what you want. But if you're offered only one thing to everybody, that doesn't work either. And to go back to the book I was reading this morning, Tony Blair's memoirs, I think the challenge he puts to the Labour Party is that Labour, in my view, completely wrongly, is coming to the belief that people really want one good uniform thing. And that falls, finally, to what every politician hears on the doorstep from public who don't understand how services are provided, which is, I just want a good local school. I don't want lots of local schools. Or, why do they have to have two supermarkets in my town? We've got one. There's a Tesco. I just want low prices in Tesco. I don't want two supermarkets. Well, the answer is you'll only get a good school and you only get a cheap Tesco if you have more than one of those things. Andrew? Uh, I think one very important thing about choice is that it benefits those that don't, um, that don't switch. Right? So if I have different options, it's, it's often natural to think, look, the, the only people, there's only a very small number of people who are going to change their behavior in response to having additional choices. So therefore, the presence of the choice is largely superfluous. It may even be captured by, a, uh, the advantage of choice may be captured by a particularly privileged group, something of that sort. But in fact, the, um, a relatively small number of switches can have important incentive effects that improve things for everybody. So if I have a town and there's only one kind of 
milk, then I might find that it's all in a particular sort of glass bottle and it's, it's a particularly expensive price. But if you introduce another sort of um, milk in another part of town, when, then the fact that even a relatively small number of people switch to that new product will cause the original supplier to change his behaviour as well. So it's, that, not, it's not for the consumer's benefit so much as the producer's. No, no, no it's for the consumer's benefit, but it's for the benefit of all consumers, not merely those who switch. And I think that that's a very important point which politicians often don't seem to grasp. And that's absolutely right. But the key thing, too, is choice is real. And, and I think maybe sometimes the debate about choice is boiled down to things like supermarkets. You know, there's 16 kinds of cornflakes. Why do we need more than six? You know, if they're all cornflakes, that isn't a choice. And that's also true of having an education system where all schools are basically the same, but they have different labels. And so in Britain, where people are often instinctively quite hostile to choice, it's because we're offered things that are really the same by marketing. And we like to be told by companies that that is choice. We can all have different kinds of electricity at the same price from 15 companies, quite often owned by the same back business. Real choice is what government has to provide, not Mm. fake choice through marketing. But just to pick you up on something you said earlier, where you said uh, labour has come to the view that actually choice isn't such a good thing. I seem to remember a couple of years ago, George Osborne and David Cameron banging on a lot about a book called Nudge, which is all about carefully constructing and carefully narrowing down people's range of choices. So it's not just a left-right, it's not just a left-wing thing. No, but that's partly again about branding. I think think this idea that choices just offered through variety of the same thing is not correct. It's it's certainly also true that economic incentives are different in that people don't just respond to pricing. And some of what Nudge, I think, was trying to say is that it isn't just about making things cheapest and and that choice can often be boiled down to saying, if you get one thing that's cheaper than everything else, people will go for that. Well, they don't just do that. That's not how humans behave. But it's difference. Maybe we want a different word than choice. What we don't want is uniformity. And my worry for Labour is that they've now just got into this mood that uniformity is what the country wants. I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I think it's important to realize that in the process of critiquing the variety or lack thereof, we are critiquing choice or freedom. And I think choice is an important tool. I mean, if you, if you remove choice or freedom from people's lives, there really is a danger of paternalism or authoritarianism um, and, a worse, and, and a worse life. I think what's important to realize, though, is that when you offer choices or options, the value of any given choice depends on your ability to perceive the differences between the options. And I think for the choice providers, whether it be retailers, whether it be government, it's incumbent upon them when providing these choices that they, the differences between those options are perceived and valued, appreciated. Uh, because if they're not, then from the perspective of the chooser, it becomes a random, arbitrary choice, at which point they, there's really no benefit to either the choice provider or the chooser. Now, you don't have to watch commercial television for very long before being assailed by all sorts of adverts for various insurance policies. If you're a NatWest customer, we guarantee to beat your home insurance renewal quote from your current provider by at least £25. Our patrols fix four out of five cars by the roadside. And with more patrols per member, we get to you fast. You really save up to £216 when I buy car insurance. Oh, yes. And you'll give me a free guaranteed hire car if I make a claim. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. Tell me. 
me, he wanted to... But a single treatment at the vets can cost on average £450. That's why we're giving you 20% off your pet insurance. And a discount if you insure more than one pet. We're not on price comparison sites. And we can give you savings. Oh. Oi, Joe, I just got 12 months car insurance for the price of 10 from Aviva. Money I save and pay for my away shirt. Good, isn't it? Sheena, buying insurance can be a complicated business. You have to go through all sorts of small print and trade off premiums versus the level of coverage that you get. Is there an art of choosing? Yes. I mean, one of the things you find when you study the insurance providers or, and it's not even just true of insurance providers, even when we see retirement savings programs and people are offered different uh, investment vehicles or mutual funds, et cetera, is that these are very complicated choices. They're much more complicated than, say, JAM. And that means you have to understand the trade-offs quite clearly. And, I, and, then, and a lot of times, well, first of all, our ability to keep track of the options gets lower. I mean, there actually is studies that show how much our brains can handle. And it's when you're talking about these sorts of very cognitively complicated choices, people have now been referring to it as the three-by-three three role. We can only really handle comparing a set of three and then after that, another set of three. And then after that, another set of threes. You can convert it into a three-tier system. But if you give people more than that amount of choice, essentially people either choose badly or they just won't choose. They'll just go with whatever it is right now, even if that happens to serve them not so well in the future. Andrew Lilico, going by that three-by-three three rule then, should we be limiting the amount of choice that we offer people in terms of medical treatments or schools? Or should we be offering them unlimited choice and let them sort out their best way of navigating that? Well, it, it could well be that the way that people would choose to navigate would be by narrowing down for themselves into sets of three. Uh, now, but of course, you don't. It's, it would be a mistake to assume that everybody will choose the same three. So, if you can have you could have chains of choice um, where, where individuals are only exposed to relatively narrow, uh, expose themselves, I say, to, to relatively narrow sets. Um, but nonetheless, that means that there's a very broad uh, set of choices over the whole market, and there's actually quite effective competition through these chains of substitution uh, between many different sorts of providers. Julian, what happens to those people who either don't have the time or don't have the necessary knowledge to go around making those kind of filter filters about what they or their kids or their parents should be getting from public services? A few in the short term will suffer um, inevitably and, and that happens on things like electricity. If you don't bother to change your electricity company you might end up paying more and all big corporations sort of have a legacy tariff just like a bank. If you don't change your bank account you end up with a bad interest rate. But in the long term everybody will gain from the choice because the irony is that it's a individual action which has collective benefits which is that the combined pressure of individuals choosing and putting pressure on successful and failing organisations gains benefits for all people who use those organisations. If something is doing badly, if a hospital is doing badly and people have a terrible rate of death from a disease in that hospital, some informed consumers, if they're offered the opportunity, will stop going to that hospital because they can choose a better one. In the end, that hospital will fail and close or it'll notice that it's losing its customers and it'll improve. And that much, much more than regulation or government intervention is the most powerful tool for improvement. Andrew, just to counter that with an example from the private sector, we've got a very competitive banking market. 
No, we don't. We do. We've got many different branches uh, uh, yes, on your high same. street. All the same. And well, yes, but that, that's, and that's the point. a failure of choice. No, it's it's po- a pretense point. of choice, not hang, a reality. Hang on, Julian. You've got you've got many different companies, both in the real world and on the internet, offering bank services, and yet you don't actually get a huge amount of variance in, I don't know, mortgage products or current accounts. Well, it's possible that people don't want enormous difference in those things. Um, I think that this point about uh, what I distinguishing between what I'd call horizontal choice, that is different, different providers of essentially the same product and vertical choices, uh, where you're talking about different kinds of products is very important. And in fact, that the, the presence of vertical choice is um, important to evolving consumer preferences. So if over time, people want slightly different sorts of insurance, then the market will uh, naturally tend to favour an evolution in the sorts of products that are available to reflect those different choices. In the public sector, uh, in terms of choice, the government has tended to focus very much on horizontal choices. So it's all about providing essentially the same service in slightly different ways, uh, in the hope that that creates some sort of um, added efficiency. I think that that's a mistake. I think over time, we should seek to increase people's vertical choice. So if you want to have um, in the health system, if you want to have top ups, if you want to buy more expensive care, or if you want to have a shorter queue, or if in education, you want to have low lower class sizes, you should be able to buy those things. That It's important that you have um, different options available in terms of public services. And just providing the same thing uh, through different providers is not adequate. OK, well, let's stop there. Because if we can acknowledge the difficulties of choice, what about its absence? Before the fall of communism in Europe, millions of people relied on the state for nearly all their goods and services. When that ended, far from feeling liberalised many felt scared. Renata Selechul, a Slovenian national and author of a recent book called Choice, told me why. Yeah, it made me think that choice is always linked to uh, prohibition. Quite often, you know, what is not available, you want more. And because we had little choices, actually, I think in regard to consumer objects, we had, of course, lots of desires, but there was an enjoyment of not having which existed in socialism, which in some strange way I cherish nowadays with this saturation of goods. Of course, we had no choice in regard to political system, the changes in regard to political system, but we have less and less of those choices today, too. You know, quite often parties sort of look similar in their with their programs. And there isn't much debate about sort of the choice of society, what kind of an organization of society we might envision in the future. There isn't a competition of ideas about, you know, in which direction, for example, capitalism should go. And you talk about the enjoyment of not having things. That contradicts the stereotype that many people have of the way life was lived in the Eastern Bloc. There was a lot of creativity related to the fact that that, that resources were limited, which I perceived that were, were was quite, was quite good. I have to say that I lived in Yugoslavia, which was different than the Eastern Bloc. So we had more freedoms, and especially borders were open. So here the situation is it wasn't so grave. But surely having choice is better than having no choice at all. Definitely, and I cherish the idea of choice. I just don't want to hype it up in the way it's hyped today. And I actually think that every choice involves a loss, especially the choices in regard to direction of our life, emotions and so on. And what society today cannot deal with is the loss. We want things to turn out in a predictable. We want to calculate how to avoid risk. And we don't accept that there is always contingency in regard to how things will work out. 
That was Renata Selechel talking to me earlier. Sheena, how much does our culture influence our attitude to choice? Oh, it, it influences our attitudes towards choice tremendously. I mean, one of the things that we've seen is that while we, like animals, all share an innate desire for choice, when it comes to our ideas about how choices should be made and who should make the choice and what do you expect from choice and what are the criteria by which you judge a choice, that's all cultural. That's something we're taught both uh, implicitly and explicitly from very, very early on. So to give you a very sort of benign example, but that has enormous consequences, uh, if you say take a child that is raised in US or UK, at a very early on, very early, early on, we ask the kid, what kind of cereal would you like? Um, they might even be just two years old, just starting to talk. Or we'll say, you know, when they're three years old, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and even though we recognize that they probably don't know the answer to that, we're implicitly telling, telling them, you need to know what you want. You need to know that you, that how to make this choice. Whereas in lots of other cultures, that just wouldn't be something we would say to our child. We would assume that we choose what they're going to eat and we will help them figure out what they're going to be when they grow up. That's certainly a decision we're not going to discussion we're going to have with them when they're three. And to go back to the experiment that you mentioned at the start, um, speed dating might be a relatively recent phenomenon in the UK, but in India they're still very used to the idea of arranged marriages, for for example. Yes, um, in, in the old days, like in my parents' time, you had no choice. You know, really, it, it was your parents that decided whom you would be married to. And it was, an, it was the idea was that it was almost fated in a sense. Um, now it's a sort of arranged courtship almost. Your parents sort of decide the shortlist. And now you meet and choose amongst that shortlist. And in a way that, that makes it easier. But that's, the most, that's perhaps the most important decision anyone can make in their life, who they're going to have to end up spending the rest of their life with. Um, and you're saying that people in India don't mind so much having their choices restricted. There are many that, you know, even in the U.S., Indians that have grown up in the U.S. now have sort of, they actually feel better in life because they can, they, they have it in their minds, well, if I find somebody on my own, well, great, but if I don't, then I'm going to go to mom and tell her to go find me somebody. And, and you see both boys and girls doing this. And in fact, most of my cousins in the States have had arranged marriages. Really? So they've used parents as a kind of backup Yeah, it's, it's backup a great plan. backup plan. <laughs> um, Andrew Lilico, then, is there, I mean, what that seems to be advocating is that actually, you know, uh, we've got very used to having choice in this country and maybe in America too, but actually in lots of other countries and in lots of other cultures, choice isn't so important. So the idea that it's always a universal good perhaps isn't true. I think an important thing that one shouldn't lose sight of is that uh, in the past, Many people have thought of certain kinds of disciplined, virtuous things as involving reductions in choice. So even if you take the case of a marriage, right, in a sense what one's doing is one's closing off certain future choices. And uh, many kinds of uh, disciplined behaviour involved excluding yourself from choices. So you said, well, I'm going to be a person, I'm going to um, be non-alcoholic, right? So I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to cut off some choices in terms of alcohol, or I'm going to be, perhaps I'm going to be a vegetarian just for reasons of self-discipline. And notions of self-discipline 
of containing our choices deliberately seem to be something which we've um, lost a little bit of. It's it's possible that that's the kind of thing which one, you know, I'm not a politician, so I can get away with saying it, but in an age of austerity, maybe we learn a little bit more about um, the value of denying ourselves certain kinds of things. Um, so it, it does seem to me that the uh, that at the same time as saying that choices should be available, we shouldn't forget the value of being able to self-deny choices. But that's a different thing from having choices denied to us by the outside. Of course, we don't have infinite choices in the future. There'll be all kinds of new things that we dreamed up, which we don't have any access to now. But I don't think it's appropriate for the government to try um, to limit our choices, at least insofar as those choices aren't particularly self-destructive, you know, um, things like addictive uh, substances and things of that sort. But um, within within healthy choices, I don't think that it's helpful for the government to restrict us. We can do that for ourselves. Julian, last question to you. Isn't choice really too expensive in an era when you're having to make spending cuts of between 25 and 40%? No, because choice... Um, reduces cost and increases efficiency. Offering lots and lots of provision and then not using it properly is pretty expensive. And in some public services, that's true. And there are probably are areas where choice is hard to envisage. I, I, I find it hard to think of a police service that you could have huge amounts of choice, although I think locally you could choose different priorities and models. Certainly with with the army, I think it's hard to think of how, as a society, we could have an army where we applied choice to it. But generally, in most circumstances, it's the thing that makes uh, things more efficient, cheaper, and better run. And that is what the Age of Austerity is about. Well, I think we should choose to end there this week. You can continue the discussion on our blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. And it remains for me to thank our guests, Sheena Iyengar, Andrew Lilico, and Julian Glover. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. And the business is back next week. Goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.